0: Could you please open your Bible to Luke chapter 7? You know, in the Bible, there are many uh, well-known heroes. They have had many sermons preached on them, books written about them, and we're well acquainted with them. You know, names like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Peter. And Paul now then there's another category of those that we could call unsung heroes they are not on the front page of the paper they are not the theme of songs and they don't receive the recognition nor are they as celebrated as the more well-known heroes and what I'd like to do throughout January when I have the opportunity to preach is to consider some of the unsung heroes of the Bible in fact I want to narrow the focus even more and consider some of the unsung heroines in the bible now often the ladies in the scriptures don't get that much attention and hence i'd like uh, to focus on some of the lesser-known female heroes so we're going to begin by considering an unnamed lady it's found in luke chapter 7 and we're going to consider her immense love and passion for the Lord Jesus, which I believe is a striking example for you and I as we stand at the beginning of a new year. But before we get to the text, let's pray. So Father God, thank you that in your grace and providence you have brought us here this morning. We ask that you would help us to focus on what the Bible says. Please enable us to be teachable, help us to be receptive lord we ask that you would remove anything that could hinder your good work in our lives we ask these things in jesus name amen how much do you love jesus i know that's a very personal question that's a very confronting question for me to begin with but it's the one that we're faced with in the text how much do you love jesus do, do you have deep, affectionate feelings for Christ? Is Jesus the greatest love of your life? Would your children, spouse, colleagues, friends, neighbours, siblings be able to say, yes, it's obvious that Brendan loves Jesus? You know, or would those you interact with on a regular basis be surprised if you made such a claim? i would be, ooh okay, I I wouldn't have identified that about you. Okay, is there any evidence in your life that proves beyond a doubt that you love the Lord? Okay, these are the questions that arise from our text. Now, Luke chapter seven is all about proving who Jesus is primarily, and it also reveals what he is like. He has healed the centurion's servant, he has raised the widow's son, and he's dealt with the doubts that plagued john the baptist at the end of his life and all of this is overwhelming evidence that jesus is the christ that he is god and the closing narrative of this chapter which is our text okay it shows us that jesus is the friend of sinners okay this was an arrow of accusation fired at him by the pharisees we read of it in verse 34 So this account illustrates that Jesus is indeed the friend of sinners. And ironically, it was in a Pharisee's home where this was demonstrated. And this is Jesus declaring that he does not view this as a negative and damning accusation like the judgmental and self-righteous Pharisees, but rather he took this as a backhanded compliment. Jesus is the friend of sinners both then and now. And this account also reveals that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. So this account continues to stack up evidence upon evidence, proving the divine identity of Jesus Christ. So as is always the case, this text is about Jesus. But we're also introduced to a lady, a lady who remains unnamed. And she was one who loved Jesus. She felt much affection toward him and it was obvious in how she treated him. And I'd like us to consider this interaction between this lady and our Lord and the obvious question that it poses for us. Okay, so that, that's the destination. That's the direction that we're heading. I want to consider this interaction between this lady and our Lords, and the obvious question that it poses for us. Now, have you ever been invited to someone's home, and truth be told, you don't want to go. Okay, don't answer that out loud, because it could be very embarrassing, particularly if the person's in this room whose home you didn't want to go to. That could get very awkward. But I'm sure most of us have received an invite, and we would have preferred not to receive it. And in our text, Jesus receives a dinner invite. And it may be a little bit surprising for us, because it come from a Pharisee. A Pharisee named Simon, verse 36, says, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. You know, we know that the Pharisees were not a fan of Jesus. They were quite hostile toward him. It's true that this intensified the closer that the time of the cross drew near. Okay, that's all according to God's providential plan. But even in the early stages of Jesus' ministry, that there was tension, there was friction. Luke 6.10 says that they were filled with madness toward Jesus. And hence, this invite seems slightly surprising. What the intentions were of this Pharisee, we cannot be certain. Perhaps he was genuinely curious. I want to know more about this Jesus. Maybe he wanted to examine Jesus. Let's see if he measures up to to my spiritual standards. Or possibly he was trying to earn spiritual merit that was considered to come when you hosted a spiritual teacher for a meal. Okay, that's what they taught in Judaism. Okay, you want spiritual merit? Invite me to your house. Okay, that's what they taught. Now we cannot be sure, but it, it seems a fair deduction from the text that this Pharisee was not overly hospitable. He neglected the common courtesies that would be extended to a dinner guest. There was no kiss of peace. There was no washing of his feet. There was no anointing with olive oil. So perhaps there was some animosity toward Jesus. But whatever the motive or intention, we know that Jesus accepted the invite. Now, I think if this was me, I would have been searching frantically for an excuse to not go you know, hoping my kids were sick, okay, but not Jesus, okay, Jesus went, Jesus shared a meal with this man, and and we must remember that sharing a meal meant much more in Bible times than it does in our times, okay, this is an intimate setting, and here Jesus was willing to dine even with a Pharisee, and I believe one writer summarized this world when he said this about Jesus, he said, separate from sinners in respect to their original sin and practice of sin, he yet was willing to contact them in order to transform their lives. And if Jesus was willing to engage with and even dine with sinners, we ought not to withdraw ourselves in such a way that we have no contact at all with the lost, should we? That's not biblical Christianity, that's a misunderstanding of separation, because how can we reach them with the gospel if we have nothing to do with them? We are not like Jesus if we separate ourselves in such a way that we have absolutely no contact at all with the world. That's something for you and I to think about at the start of a new year. Now, in order for us to grasp what happens at this dinner that Jesus attended, We need to have a basic understanding of two customs of the time, otherwise this won't make much sense to us. Okay, so number one, dinner parties in the Bible would often be hosted in the courtyard of a home. So this made it a semi-public function. So it wasn't uncommon, especially if they were rich, for many uninvited people to call in for a chat, and some would even sit around the perimeter of the room and they'd watch you eat your meal. That sounds quite bizarre to us, but that was the practice. So this was not an invitation-only event limited to the eight-seat dining table like today, but rather this is more public. and This is meaning a stranger appearing wasn't unusual. You know, Perhaps a barbecue in the front yard where people would call in and have a chat is a closer modern concept. Now, the second, cons- the second custom we need to understand is how they ate. And one writer explains it like so. He says, The guests reclined on the left elbow on low-lying couches, eating with the right hand. One's feet would extend away from the table in keeping with the belief that the feet were unclean and offensive by nature. So they didn't sit on chairs around a table like we typically dine, but in a more laying down type posture. Okay, so with these two customs in mind, this will help us understand the unfolding narrative. If you look at verse thirty-seven, it says, "And behold," and this is meant to grab our attention. It's a bit like the dramatic music in a movie. Okay, this is the plot twist. They're eating this meal, they're having a conversation. No doubt, religious things are at the top of the agenda. Everything seems to be going okay. But then the unexpected happened. An uninvited lady entered the scene. And she's identified by Luke in verse 37, by the Pharisee in verse 39, and by Jesus in verse 47 as a sinner. Now what is meant in verse 37 by sinner? This is not a general declaration that she is a sinner like all of us although that's a true theological statement, but rather this term marked her out as a notorious sinner. Okay, many speculate she was a prostitute. That could be right, but it could refer to a number of notoriously sinful lifestyles. Okay, so she was a well-known sinner in this community. But this lady had heard that Jesus was dining at Simon's house. And with that particular knowledge, she planned to go and honor Jesus. Okay, what she was about to do, that this was not some spur of the moment rash decision. She didn't just get swept away in the moment, but but this was premeditated. But this was a planned declaration of love. She went desiring to honor him. It's not like she was in a church setting and the organ keeps playing. And I don't know if you've ever seen this. The preacher's like, if you're being convicted, come down the front, come down the front. Just as I am, play seven times. You know, it wasn't like that at all. She she went, I am going to honor Jesus. And we see this in verse 37. She went with an alabaster box of ointments. And understand these details express great expense. And she went to anoint Jesus. That was her plan. And this showed great courage. This showed great determination. She knew this would not be well received. That this moralistic Pharisee, he would not be thrilled by her presence. And yet none of this deterred her. Off she went, desiring to honor Jesus. And as she made her way in, perhaps she needed to push past some people she finally saw Jesus. Here he was, reclined at the table, but as she stood at his feet, she began to cry. And I can picture her saying to herself, Hold it together, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. And then the more she says it, the more she cries. You know, have you ever gone sit to read something about someone you care about deeply and the tears just start to flow? Or you see someone you love after an extended period of time, and as your eyes lock, you you just start crying. I think that's the sense. And her, her tears were falling onto the feet of Jesus. She didn't have a towel, so she began to wipe his feet with her hair. And here's the thing. This was actually frowned upon. A lady was not allowed to let her hair down in public. In fact, according to Jewish rabbis, that was a divorceable offense. So ladies, if you have your hair out, look out. I'm trying to see. No, Emma's got her hair up, so there'll be no divorce for Emma. So that's good. You know, that was the custom of the time. And yet so overcome with emotion was this lady. She didn't care about society's over-the-top regulations. She didn't care what anyone thought Such was her love for Jesus. Such was her love that this humble task, understand washing her feet, this was reserved for the lowest of servants. This was the least that she could do for Jesus. And upon cleaning his feet, she she kissed them. She, She anointed them with this expensive oil. This was a public demonstration of passion and affection toward Jesus. Now, we must note that this is not sexual in any way. There are some perverted secular scholars who paint such a scenario, but that's not the case at all. But rather, this is a disciple of Jesus who loved him dearly and deeply. This is a lady who was so overcome by the grace of God that she's weeping tears of gratitude. This is a humble display of affection. Now, I want you to try and imagine the scene. Engage your sanctified imagination. It must have really changed the course of this dinner party when this happened, mustn't it? This was not a common occurrence. In fact, there are only two or three instances like this recorded in the Gospels where Jesus was anointed. It's interesting that it was only women who anointed Jesus. But due to this being uncommon, it must have been quite awkward. You know those moments when someone says or does something and you just don't know what to say. You just stand there. Your mouth is open. It's so awkward. That's what I picture. And no doubt there were many silent internal conversations happening amongst the guests. And we're given an insight into what the host was thinking. You know, he being a typical Pharisee was incredibly judgmental. He was damning of this whole scene. And I want you to notice verse 39. Okay, this reveals to us his internal conversation. Says this man, speaking of Jesus, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. So Simon, Simon the Pharisee, he's horrified that such a notorious sinner was present. And he was even more horrified that Jesus, the, the teacher, he allowed her to do this. Why, why didn't Jesus rebuke her? Why didn't he send her away? This is outrageous. And in his mind, this proved that Jesus was not a prophet. A man of God would not allow such a thing. No one who is godly would associate with such a sinner. Simon the Pharisee believed that religion was all about being good. That God was for good people. Not for those whose lives were an awful, sinful mess. And hence to him, this was scandalous why did jesus allow this to happen and in his mind the only conclusion is he must not be a prophet no one from god would associate with such a sinner okay that this is what's bubbling away inside the pharisee but before he said anything jesus broke the silence and there must have been a sense of relief when the awkward silence was finally shattered and he said to simon simon I have something that I want to say to you, verse 40. Who knows what the Pharisee expected, but as Jesus often did, he presented a parable. The parable is found in verses 41 and 42, and it goes like this. Simon, if a creditor was owed two different debts, both were significant, but one was much more. Neither party were able to settle the debt, that they had no money to their name. So the creditor forgave both debts. He graciously pardoned both, no strings attached. Out of the two debtors, who would love the creditor the most? That's the parable. Simon reluctantly answers, well, the one forgiven the most would love the most. And Jesus assures him that his answer was correct. But then he offers a stinging critique. He says, Simon, I came into your home. You didn't provide any water for my feet. But she cleaned my feet with her tears and her hair. Simon, you didn't greet me with a kiss, but but she kissed my feet constantly. Simon, you didn't apply any oil to my head as was custom, but she anointed my feet with expensive oil." And Jesus' point is this, Simon, her love for me is far greater than yours. And this was because she had been forgiven the greater debt. Notice verse 47. It says, Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. So this reveals to us why she did this. She loved Jesus, And she loved him because she was forgiven. She had experienced forgiveness of sin. Forgiven here is in the perfect tense, indicating prior forgiveness. So at some point in time previously, she had experienced liberation, freedom, forgiveness of sin. She'd encountered Jesus teaching on another occasion and had experienced this liberation of forgiveness. She had been freed from the shackles of sin, that the guilt had been removed. And she was so moved and so touched by God's grace that this was the logical outflow. Now, an important interpretive point in verse 47. Okay, this is not saying that she was forgiven because she loved Jesus. Okay, notice Oh, you could read it like that. It says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. So this word for should be understood in what we call a casual sense. So her love was not the basis of her forgiveness, but the evidence of it. So we could understand this word for as thus we know. So due to her love for Jesus, thus we know She was forgiven. So we could understand this verse like so. For for this reason, I tell you that her many sins must have been forgiven or she would not have shown such great love. So her passionate display of love was a result of Jesus' forgiveness. And just in case we, we have any doubts about how I'm interpreting this, verse 50 makes it very clear. It was her faith that had saved her. Okay, salvation always comes by faith alone. She was not saved because she first loved Jesus, but she loved Jesus because she had been saved. Her love for Jesus was evidence, it was proof of her salvation. Okay, verse 50 clarifies the true biblical way of salvation. It says, And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. We need to understand that God does not demand that we prove our love for him before he will save us. That's not how it works. But rather, he offers forgiveness as the free gift of his love. Then once our sins are forgiven, the right and natural response for us is to love him in return. So it's not the love we show for Jesus that causes him to forgive us. Okay? It's his forgiveness that causes us to love. And that is why this lady responded in such a way. She had been forgiven greatly. So she loved greatly. Okay? This is the big idea of this text. Big forgiveness results in big love. And here, this unnamed hero poured out this public display of affection. She, she didn't care about society's opinions. She didn't care what people would think or say. She, she was moved by the deep, deep love of Jesus. She had been so swept away by God's grace, so overwhelmed by the complete forgiveness that she had experienced, that this extravagant display of love to her, that that is the only right response. And thus we see that a disciple is a lover. Okay, we are to be lovers of Jesus. Understand, Jesus desires not only the faith of our minds, but the affection of our hearts. Jesus desires not only the faith of our minds, but the affection of our hearts. And that leads to the question of the text. Are you a lover of Jesus? Do you feel affection toward the Lord Jesus? What what evidence in your life declares your love for Him? Now be honest with yourself. Conduct an assessment. How great is your love for our Lord? Now what's an objective standard to measure such love? It's very easy for us to say, well, sure, I I love Jesus. What Jesus says elsewhere, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. That's the gauge. Now, again, this is not how one is saved, but this is the evidence that one has been saved. This is the proof that we love Jesus. We obey him. If you love Jesus, you will obey him. We we can't profess to love Christ supremely and then continue in deliberate disobedience. We can't say, I love Jesus more than anything else, and yet our life is full of deliberate sin and disobedience. Well, we don't care what Jesus says. That's a contradiction. And here's the thing. And I'll warn you, this statement's going to sting. So many Christians are not making progress in their spiritual lives. So many are ensnared in sin, and so many are not serving the Lord because they don't love Jesus like they ought to. That stings, but it's reality. So many of us as Christians, we're not making progress. We're ensnared in sin. We're not serving the Lord because we we don't love Jesus as much as we think we do. You know, J.C. Ryle put it like this. He said, there never will be more done for Christ till there is a more hearty love to Christ himself. The fear of punishment, the desire of reward, the sense of duty are all useful arguments in their way to persuade men to holiness. But they're all weak and powerless until a man loves Christ. Once that principle gets hold of a man, you will see his whole life changed. The heart must be engaged for Christ or the hands will soon hang down. The affections must be enlisted into his service or our obedience will soon stand still. It will always be the loving workman who will do most in the Lord's vineyards. Love for the Lord is essential. And hence the question posed from our text, how much do you love Jesus? Now sure, like this lady, we can't go and kiss him. We can't wipe his feet with our hair. But there are certainly many other things we can do. We can obey him. We can serve him. We can minister in the church for him. We can sing hymns of praise to him with passion. not just empty words, but engaged hearts. We can speak words of affection to him in prayer. When was the last time you said, Jesus, I love you. And we can tell him we're sorry for our many, many sins. We can listen to him affectionately as we read our Bibles. We can do it by reaching others with the gospel. And there are many other practical ways. What does the evidence of your life declare about the extent of your love for Jesus? Now, I think most of us would admit that we could and we should love Jesus more. That There may even be some here this morning who... You know, you know, you think, man, I, I'm lacking severely. You know, my, my, my love for Christ, it's not like what it once was. It's grown cold. I've grown distant. Other things have captured the affections of my heart. And maybe there's even someone here this morning who you think, man, Brennan, I, I've never loved Jesus. What, what's the answer to this? Well, we learn in our text That those who are forgiven will love big. Those who have been forgiven the most love the most. So when love is lacking, it's either you have never experienced forgiveness of sin and hence you need to be saved. Or you are not fully grasping how great the forgiveness is that you have experienced. And I think that's where a lot of us would be at. Now, it's important for me to say this, that this does not mean that unless we fall into deep, deep depths of sin, unless we commit these horrible, horrible sins that that we cannot love Jesus deeply, that's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean that well, hey, I've got to go out and do some really, really bad things so then I can experience forgiveness and then love God more. That's not the sense. Okay, we don't need to become bigger sinners. Why? Because we already are big sinners. Okay, all we need to do is realize how big of sinners we actually are. We, we need a consciousness of sin. You know, the depth and passion of our personal Christianity depends on how clearly we see our personal guilt and wickedness. And so often Christians show so little love for Christ because they have never truly seen what great sinners they are and then how sure, sweet and complete the forgiveness of Jesus is. We need to grasp the depths of our depravity. We need to understand how wicked we actually are. We need to understand the extent of our sin and the guilt that we possess. For then we will grasp how glorious the forgiveness of Jesus in the gospel is. And when we get that, love for Christ is the natural outflow. If we do little for Christ and love him little, it's because we have little idea how much we've been forgiven. Because if we grasp how sinful we are and how complete and sweet the forgiveness of Jesus is, then we will love him. And hence, that's why every single day, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remind yourself of the gospel every single day. R- remind yourself of sin. R- remind yourself that Jesus is the Savior who forgives even the biggest sinners. And this will result in Jesus being the lover of your soul. You, you will love the Lord your God with all your hearts. Your affection for Christ will be growing warmer And not colder. Because how can we not love such a great Savior? How can we not love such a great Savior who has forgiven us such a great debt? You know, a simple and yet searching question is posed by our text. How much do you love Jesus? For the Christian, since we've been forgiven big, we should love let's pray father I do thank you uh, for, for this uh, portion of Scripture thank you for the great demonstration uh, of of love uh, for our Lord Jesus our Lord as we stand at the beginning of a new year you know, help us to make uh, the decision more the decision today rather that's uh, we want to love you more we want to be growing uh, in, our, in our love for you. And for that to happen, we need to be growing in our understanding of the gospel. So may this be uh, our daily pursuit. And I, I do pray this morning that if there's one here that says, you know, I've never loved Jesus, I do pray that they would seek one of us out uh, to ask more questions about the gospel. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.